Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Every year in June, Apple hosts a huge conference in Northern California called the Worldwide Developers Conference, or WWDC. This is one of the biggest moments of the year. This is Apple basically saying, hey, this is our big software roadmap for the next year or so, while also hinting at the hardware it's planning for the fall. Of course, it's also where developers learn to build new apps with the latest technologies, which drives Apple's growing services revenues. So, Mark, we're giving you an episode of Decrypted to preview this year's WWDC. What do you have for us? Thanks, Brad. Well, today I'm going to give you an even earlier peek into what's coming at the conference and take you inside the key App Store approval process with Philip Shoemaker. He used to run Apple's App Store review department and played a role in some of the WWDC conferences. He left Apple a few years ago, and he's now the CEO of a security company called Identity.com. We reached out to Apple on a number of points in this interview, and they declined to comment. I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Mark Ehrman, and you are listening to Decrypted. Okay, Mark, I'll let you take it from here. I remember this must have been 10 years ago. Yeah. In a past life, I used to do some some app development. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. So we were in ninth grade or 10th grade, my friend Aaron and I, we saw there was this app called uh, I Am Rich. It was $1,000. And I think that's uh, maybe before you started or a little bit after you started. And that app got removed, got from the App Store after I think 16 or 18 people bought it. So we thought it would be funny to come up with a $100 version right. called You Are Rich. That get that got pulled from the App Store, and that's how I met you. That's right. Because after it got pulled, I called to complain, again, before I did all the Apple news, wanting to talk to you, demanding to talk to Philip Shoemaker. That's right. And then I got you. So what, what was that like? How often were you, were you doing stuff like that? Well, it, it, you know, to be honest, it, you were one of the few developers that actually reached out, and you were persistent about it, right, okay. that you're doing what you're doing now. But at the time, there, there were a few developers that would reach out. 2009 was a really breakthrough year for Apple and learning a lot about the App Store. And we learned a lot about how approving the wrong app can actually make the stock price go down. And when that happens, you get calls like I did from Steve, from Al Gore, and folks like that that would just, you know, be mad at you for for your team approving an app like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I didn't realize it went literally all the way to the top and beyond with Steve Jobs and Al Gore. What, what was the interaction between AppReview and the well, exec team? You know, volume, submission volume in March 2009 were just skyrocketing, and they kept going. We were doubling the size of the team every three to six months. So uh, so it was, it was very involved, this very involved process. And to put these questionable apps in front of the executives once a month was ridiculous to me. So I made that meeting weekly, which meant I got a beating weekly, right? <laughs> when you'd miss your numbers or you'd approve the wrong app, which, you know, in the early days, we did all of that. It was, uh, it was a process we were trying to refine because we were, we were inventing. However, when certain apps got approved that they shouldn't have, you know, the, 
three three weeks into my job, uh, Apple released uh, an app or approved an app called Baby Shaker. I'm sure you know all about that. Yeah, talk, take take us through that. What take us start to finish? What happened there? Baby Shaker was was one of these really weird things because at the time, early early on in the App Store, we were not certain as to what apps we should approve and not approve. Early on, we really had eight. Uh, seven or eight things that Steve gave us specifically to look out for. And things like I Am Rich weren't on there. Things like Baby Shaker just really weren't there. So early on, we were having three sets of eyes look at every app. It went to somebody that, one of my peers, uh, someone senior that I took the team over from, and uh, two of his employees. And they all approved it. And what it was was it's a, it's a drawing of a baby. And when it would start to cry just randomly, you would rock it to sleep. And that was great. But if you were getting frustrated, people would shake the heck out of that device, and then it would put X's over the eyes of the baby, and it says, never shake a baby. Right? It was, I, I wouldn't say it was a, 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 a good message, but it should never have been approved. So when that app got approved, it was an interesting day. It got approved on a Monday or a Tuesday, and we announced record earnings. We announced, uh, I think Eddie had announced something like a billionth download for the App Store. I mean, all these amazing numbers, and our stock price went down. And that's because when. Because of the baby shaker. Because of the baby shaker. We had the uh, shaken baby syndrome folks picketing outside of Infinite Loop. For me, uh, baby shaker was interesting because I saw my phone ring and it said Steve Jobs' office. And I picked up Reticent and uh, I got his admin who said, Steve would like to talk to you. <laughs> and Steve just had simple word for me. You're stupid and you hire stupid people. This was one of the best conversations I had with Steve. It was just <laughs> so succinct to the point he hung up the phone. I knew I understood his gist, right? The gist was, and I had nothing to do with this app. I didn't hire the people that reviewed it. I didn't review it myself, but I get it. The next phone call I got was from the office of Al Gore. And then that just blew my mind. And talking to Al, he, uh, he just wanted to know what the review process was. And, and how we missed this and what were the mistakes. And he was very pleasant, uh, unlike the Steve. Interesting. I mean, is that common for board members to get involved with the senior executives at Apple across their Not members? usually. Yeah, this wow. was the first time and only time it ever happened to me at Apple. So tell me about the review process itself, how it started under you and what it progressed to. Because like you said, I remember this was like a one, two-week thing. These days, you can get an app approved within 48, 72 hours. That's right. So how does it work? Someone submits an app to the App Store someone on the app review team downloads the file, puts it on a phone, take us into yeah, the room. There's no secret. First of all, there's zero automation. Wow. Right? You have to wrap your head around that, right? Every app has to see a set of eyes. And that's something that Phil was always, uh, Phil Schiller was always adamant. And that's the senior VP of marketing who now runs all the app store operations. That's correct. Right. And Phil would was adamant that we needed a set of eyes because things slipped through. So you'd go there in the morning, and you're a good reviewer. You say, you know, I could review probably between 50 and 100 apps a day. Now, that's high. Sounds like a lot. Most reviewers yeah. could do about 30. Especially if it's like a game or something super involved. You know, it could take forever. That's right. Some of the, some of the levels, some of the, the uh, uh, other features unlock over time. So it's difficult to review every app. We don't have any special functionality to go in and look at a specific screen. We're using it just like users are. So a reviewer goes in, they claim, say, let, let, let's just say it's a, it's a basic reviewer, they claim 30 apps. And so they go and they claim them. Now, what that does is that downloads it from the server internally and then starts syncing it to your device. Once everything's synced, you have now 30 apps on your device and you go, you, you load up the tool on your Mac, you say, okay, I'm going to review this one first. And then you launch it on your, on your device and you just start looking. Now, there's over 150 guidelines. In the early days, 
it wasn't that defined. And so it's a little more nuanced than what you see in the guidelines. The guidelines are written up in a gray way uh, for a very valid reason, right? We want we don't know what we're going to see. Now you're talking about know. the like the famous app review guidelines that are on Apple's developer that, website. That's correct. But so developers would submit apps, not knowing what's allowed and what's not allowed. And the way most developers in the early days would determine what's okay is they would look at the store. If it's on the store, clearly it's all right. Makes sense. But if you think about it, app reviewers are human. So in, in, in a case like this, I, I saw that as an absolute failure, and I've always, always tried to fix it. That's why I think automation would be so, so helpful. But you and I know AI can only get us so far. Now, then we relied heavily on this wiki, and this wiki became hundreds of pages long. You expect a reviewer to review an app in about 13 minutes, right, for a new app, 13 minutes, while looking at 100 pages of a wiki. It's just, it's untenable. So over time, we uh, we just started refining these these wiki uh, guidelines. We, we started refining all of our processes to be able to, to make it a little flow flow a little faster. And to be honest, to get it down under three weeks, which is what, what it was when I joined, we we had to make a lot of changes. And one of the first was, over time, I got rid of the three eyes on every app and got it down to one set of eyes. But all these reviewers had to pass a lot of education that we did internally, and then ultimately a sit down with me. So in order to be you know, the guy who can put the stamp down to push a guy or a girl to push the app out, they had to have a chat with you first. You had to approve right. them as a member of the team. Yeah. I sat down with everybody before they could push that final button and remind them about Baby Shaker, remind them about I Am Rich, and and talk to them about stock price going down based on just one bad decision that the team makes. And uh, look, that Baby Shaker incident was painful internally. So what's the room like? Is it like this big, you know, big room with a bunch of desks, a bunch of iPads, iPhones, etc.? where everyone's sitting next to each other collaborating, or is it very individualized? Yeah. Tell me, pretend you're an app reviewer. Tell me what your day's like. So I'll tell you about the first days, right? The, the early days, March 2009 and, and most of 2009, we were in Infinite Loop 3, so IL3, and we were scattered in conference rooms. So no, room's not bigger than this. In a room this big, we would probably put in five reviewers uh, with, you know, a foot and a half, two feet of desk space. And we're in a small room, by the way. <laughs> we're, we're in a small room. We'd fit yeah. five folks in there. We'd blacken all the windows, and we would uh, card activate every door. Because this was, you're dealing with developer secrets, right? They haven't released this publicly yet. You want to be able to hold on to these things and make sure that, um, uh, and make sure that nobody in, outside of the app review team sees these apps in advance. Because we have a, we have a responsibility to the developers. So everything was locked down. We had black curtains everywhere, and uh, and the reviewer would sit in front of a MacBook and and one or two phones, typically. You know, obviously after the iPad came out, we put an iPad in every. Uh, every uh, uh, reviewer had multiple iPads and multiple iPhones. And over time, we added to the processes such as wiping out each device every morning. And we had a lot of lot of crazy situ- scenarios in, in those rooms where people would be eating. Uh, uh, f- so what, one of the big ones was oatmeal every morning with fish sauce on it. And mm-hmm. half the team would choke at that and the other half the team loved it. So just crazy things like that always happening. Now, the way it is now is it's an open, you, I'm sure you've been to Facebook and other companies like that. And you've sure. seen their open floor plan. It's pretty much like that. Everybody gets about three feet now of desk space, but it's all open and it's extremely collaborative. Now, how many people would you say are reviewing apps, and is it localized to Cupertino? Do you have places other elsewhere in California, elsewhere in the world? How what's the setup like? 
in, in, in a company where, where you're representing over 53 countries we, or 53 languages that were, were represented by my team, you, uh, it'd be great to be able to hire people outside of Cupertino. But that's not the Apple way, right? The Apple way is this is an intellectual property. What we do on the review team and how we review apps is very uh, new to the world. Uh, we didn't want anybody like Microsoft or Google or anybody learning our secrets. So we never hired contractors and we kept them all in Cupertino. And then ultimately we built a few buildings in Sunnyvale and that's where they're housed to this day. What do you think of the recent App Store changes? There's been a lot in, you know, to improve it on the consumer side, the interface, but also uh, subscriptions, new ways for developers to create additional revenue. What are your thoughts? There, there's good and bad with all of it. You know, the the, the thing that pained me as a, I, I've, I've always been a, uh, you, you could look at my job at Apple as kind of a regulator to make allow what goes on the store and what, how they marketed, all of that other stuff I didn't really care about. The, the thing that kind of got me a little nervous was when we started putting uh, advertisements in the and when you, you would search for a certain game and oh, you so get an ad ads. at the top, the so search like, ads were painful. Like Google search results. That's right. And they would have to pay per click or pay for every 100 clicks or so or 100 downloads. So you could have the worst app ever that's always appearing at the top. And, uh, and I talk about worst apps a lot because there's a lot of stuff in the store that's, that shouldn't be there, in my opinion, right? So how, how do you think it should be? Do you think they should be more stringent? I remember in your very early days, especially when the first iPad came out, Tell me about that. Was Steve Jobs involved personally? And what are the first thousand apps for the iPad? You're going to be extra careful. Because I remember when I submitted iPad apps, those things were getting rejected left and right. Doesn't make They said it doesn't make sense to have it as one of the first bundle of apps. Talk to us about that. Talk to us about the iPad. Right. The, the, the iPad was, was interesting. It was the first hardware release that my team got really involved in. Uh, for the most part, Apple's super tight on, on new equipment, new products, and, and they don't want to expose it to anybody. And, and my team was mostly a bunch of ex-Apple genius, Apple store folks, right? That's where we hired a majority of our, of our people from. And so Apple didn't see them as the standard corporate folks, and therefore the team wasn't as, as trustworthy as the others. And plus, it, it was a large group, right? It grew over time. So, uh, so we typically weren't involved in new product releases, and I understand that. But sometimes we have to get involved, like the watch and the iPad were, were two examples. The iPad, we were involved pretty much uh, about three weeks before launch, not much more than that. And that's when we started Except This was the only time we allowed people to submit uh, apps that were in alpha or beta state, just so we could start understanding what people were, because were going people, to Because people, developers, didn't have iPads yet. That's so right. someone needed to test it out on hardware, obviously it would be Apple, so they could be ready for day one when consumers get them. That's right. Really good point, right? In the past, we'd all, we never allow you to submit an app until the hardware's been released, because we want to make sure you're trying it on actual hardware. You don't just do it based on a simulator build. Because it's, it's, oh, it's never the same. It's never the same. Right. But you and I, you, you probably know this as well as I do, most developers submit on a simulator build. So every night I'd send a bunch of apps off to the execs and say, here's the issue we have, right? It's tracking location or whatever the issue was and try to figure out if this was something that's uh, uh, appropriate or not. Everybody wanted to change the UI. They wanted to go to a, like a desktop UI for the iPad. So we had a lot of developers drawing these, uh, these like desktop metaphors, which we rejected all of them. Even though it's kind of interesting, 
it just didn't fit the, the iPad and the iPhone model, the iOS model. So we rejected a bunch of those. But early on, I grabbed a team of about 15 people. We put them in a special room from the App Review team. And uh, they were the only ones that were able to play with the hardware. We had it mounted, uh, you know, with, with the cable like, like you used to see in the Apple stores, yep. mounted to the, the desk. And, uh, and we collected them every evening. So it was a very tight process. And we rejected and rejected every day. We rejected apps. And developers resubmit every day those same apps to be able to be in that first block. So that leads me to my next question. And I know, I mean, you could easily just flatly deny this. Do some developers get, you know, special attention or special policies and in circumstances? What's the difference between, you know, me as a developer back then in high school uh, you know, a mom-and-pop shop development firm in Facebook because the idea was they would all be treated the same, but is that necessarily the case? Steve always argued that all developers should be treated equally. For me, it was all about I, – I took Steve's word and I said, yes, all developers are created equally. I will not give one developer uh, any allowance. I mean, if you, if you read some of the early stuff that I wrote on Twitter, et cetera, I was calling out Facebook all the time, even though they were one of these privileged few developers – they had some of the worst code at the time. I mean, they 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 uploaded. You remember the Wall Street Journal article? The uh, your apps are watching you. That radically, fundamentally changed what we did at AppReview because we realized that even big developers, LinkedIn and the Facebooks that were taking your contacts and sending them to the cloud, you just couldn't trust them. Right? They weren't notifying people that they were doing this. Yet, Path and Facebook and LinkedIn and so many companies were doing this that. You start giving this special allowances to these big guys because they're who they are, and you get burned. There is another app I did want to ask you about. Google Voice, obviously, you know, today, 10 years later, this is Google's calling service. But what Google wanted to do was launch Google Voice for iPhones. This was in the early days of the App Store. But... There's a whole backstory there. What was tell, talk us through it? Well, it actually, you know, Google Voice for uh, for online for the web came out long before uh, uh, before they tried to push through uh, Google Voice for the for the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And a third party developer was the first one on board. And what he did was he wrote an app for uh, I forget what the name of it was and for Google Voice. Was and it he G Voice? I think his, I think it was G Voice. First yeah. name was Sean. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. good memory. Good memory. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely G Voice. Yeah. and I had weekly calls with him. I mean, he and I had many conversations, and it lasted 11 months, probably, of me saying, you're not going to get on the store. You're not getting on the store today. You're not getting on the store then. And it went on daily. Now, let's take a look at why, right? What is Google Voice? Well, it replaces the telephone features of your, you know, it it replaces the the calling features of your iPhone. Well, that was kind of strike number one. Apple says, no, this, this is for we don't want Google to take over the phone. We don't want there to be a Gmail client, a browser, uh, uh, a phone calling, a, a, a contacts, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because then it would become the G phone was the fear, right? Just like they're afraid of the Facebook phone. So there was an actual fear inside Apple early days of the App Store that if they allowed these different Google services on the phone, the phone could basically become a Google phone. That was a real thing. That was a real thing. I mean, the, the, the fear that somebody would come along, a Facebook, a Google, whomever, and wipe off and, and remove all of our items, you know, the dialing, the, the contacts, and replace that with Facebook or Google variations of it. That was the number one fear because then suddenly you're kind of, you're losing this, this uh, um, I don't know, you're, you're losing the cachet of the phone. You're losing the, the people think more about Apple. Once they start using these other apps, they'd be thinking more about 
Google. Now, is that a reason why still to this day, and I believe that will be the case for iOS 13, which we'll get to, you cannot set other third-party apps as defaults? For main functions, yes, I, I would say that's absolutely the reason. Now, if if you look at it, if 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 you look at it historically, what Apple's done, Apple finally, you know, Scott Forstall, the VP of Engineering at the time, uh, said something really good. He says, "Look, I don't care if these other competing services come on the platform. It's actually good for us. We work harder to make a better product." And Scott was the was the wise man in the room, but uh, but others always pushed back on that. Ultimately, we got Google Voice in, at which point I was able to 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 get G Voice on onto it and allow other VoIP apps like Line Two and uh, and other apps as well. So that takes me to my next point. What about this growing concern of competition between Apple and the app developers? You have this whole Supreme Court situation where they ruled that there can be lower court lawsuits uh, in regards to the percentage that Apple takes from developers. There's also fear. There was a story in the New York Times recently that Apple was pulling a lot of apps that competed with screen time. Apple said that was because of privacy concerns, which I totally believe, but that doesn't take away from the fact that there is that concern, especially now with these new iOS releases that are coming out with better and better core apps. Right. What, what do you think of that? I, I'm really worried about about the competition piece. You know, you you, you see the like Spotify going to the EU regulators about breaking up, um, and uh, you have Elizabeth Warren talking about breaking up Facebook and and Apple's etc. And and I struggle with that. I, I recently wrote a, a Medium post on on this thing because I believe that uh, that there is now a conflict as Apple goes into these spaces that are uh, ripe with competition. You know, in the early days of the iPhone, everything I, Apple was doing was new. But once there started being competition, like Spotify was a big one, right? Remember back in the day when Steve said nobody wants to rent their music? I, I was at Rhapsody at the time. I loved the digital subscription music business. And to hear that just kind of broke my heart. And now you have Apple Music. And so now you have Apple Music. Yeah. So when Apple Music comes out and they put it on the thing and on, on the platform, and then they require Spotify or, or, or let's say Netflix for a, a different business model, when they put them out there and say, oh, by the way, you still have to pay us 30%. The margins are too thin. That's why we changed some of the guidelines in the early days about allowing for uh, uh, magazines and, and certain uh, types of, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, content to uh, to not have to use in-app purchase. Right? They could get around that. I and remember they did that because of the margins. There was a shift. So originally, you could not build free-to-play apps and games. So if you wanted to offer in-app purchases, your app needed to be paid. One two years later, they switched it so you could do freemium program. That's right. That's right. And, and Apple really was focusing on a few core things like like music, movies, uh, um, magazine subscriptions, because the margins are just so thin there. They can't spare the 30%. So Apple made a special allowance for that. But they're now in a position of, of, of dominance again, right? We have the, the Apple Music. But Apple Music doesn't have to carve out 30% and pay that to some other entity. But Spotify has to. I mean, this is where you can absolutely annihilate the competition. But so, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think the outcome is going to be? Do you think Apple will lower the the split, the commission split? What's the solution? There, this is a, a tough one because I, I don't know what the right answer is here. You know, to and and I think it's going to be status quo. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So speaking of developers, we are sitting here just two weeks ahead of the annual developers conference. And given your background and your knowledge of apps and developers, I thought it would be great to talk about this upcoming WWDC with you. And we've reported a lot about what's to be expected. But I'm mostly curious from you, what was App Review's involvement or your involvement specifically in your more senior role on WWDC, this big conference for thousands of developers? What were rehearsals like? What was the atmosphere for the company leading up to this big June launch every year? It's uh, it's chaos there right now. You know, it's just a few weeks away. Apple uh, Apple really starts diving, digging into this in in January timeframe, and they start focusing internally. Now, the venues are, and all of that's already been reserved. You know, so so that gets handled well in advance. But that January, when we come back from the the holiday break, uh, it's it's crunch mode for for everything. And, and one of the first things is getting the tickets in the right developers' hands. So as you know, it, it used to be we would make them available. We wouldn't tell people when. We'd make them available, and people would buy them up quickly. Now, it was always on U.S. time zones. So we'd open the door first thing in the morning, 10 a.m. on, on uh, Apple Time in California. And we'd find that the Chinese developers were way underrepresented. The European ones were a little better represented because of the time zone. But people in the East, uh, in Asia and stuff, they were not able to, to get um, the, the tickets they needed to. And, and that's when it really started selling out. You know, before the iPhone, uh, we couldn't give away tickets. And now it's more of a lottery system. But, you know, you, you have to use air quotes when you say that because it's a lottery for, for you and me. But it's not a lottery for the Epics and the Zingas and the Ten Cents, right? They're guaranteed admission. And it'll always be that way because you need some of their products on board. So it starts out with just trying to get the tickets into people's hands. And then it's all about getting the right content. And there's a lot. I was on all those planning uh, meetings uh, trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do, who the band is going to be. This is all pretty much. And right now it's in crunch mode for presentations. The developers are all getting uh, doing their rehearsals right now because, you know, we always Apple always wanted at least a thousand developers to be in attendance at this, which is why it's always to kind Apple of developers, Apple engineers. Yes, that's correct. Apple engineers. So they have their main keynote, which is always on that Monday. They're typically on that Monday, but then throughout the week, hundreds of sessions. You would say that's of right. Apple engineers, little going a little deeper on the new APIs, new developer frameworks, the new applications. That's right. And so that's what they've been preparing for the last six months. That's what preparing for. And then after that, they're expected to be in the lab for long periods of time because when you release a new feature, uh, uh, you want to be able to come down and and speak directly to some of the developers that are trying to use your APIs, et cetera, and and be able to answer some of these questions. A lot of bugs get fixed. Developers learn, uh, Apple developers learn a lot about how people are trying to use the APIs and are able to fix them up before it goes to production. What was your involvement in new features, new iOS features or macOS features that were presented annually? Pretty much zero. To, to be honest, it's the, these features. What was great about when Scott Forstall was around, it changed when when he left. Scott became he helped us build 
out the App Store, and he saw all the pains we were going through when we were building it. And so Scott was very uh, knowledgeable of what would impact App Review. And so whenever they had a new feature that we were going to have to review for, he'd always make his team figure out how is Apple, how is App Review going to to review for this feature? How are they going to be able to tell if they're doing it right or if they're doing it wrong? And he was really good about that. When he left, everything changed. We had less visibility into engineering. Engineering never consulted us when they would submit a new feature or, or put a feature out that would greatly impact us. We just got notified a few weeks before the uh, WWDC, and then we'd have to kind of figure out how we were going to work with it. So how else do you think Apple software development changed from the transition from Scott Forstall, who was the first person in charge of iOS software, to Craig Federighi, who now runs iOS and macOS software and all the underlying frameworks? It's 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 tough to know how much was was the the changing of the guard versus just the the amount of of code that people suddenly have to write. I mean, I, I think we're all pretty uh, aware that uh, that things are a little buggier than they used to be, right? That the, the fit and finish of of the software, and I'm not talking the hardware, the software, it's just not what it used to be. No, I completely agree with you. We had a, a story last year that after a couple of years of people making comments like this, which is entirely valid and true, they sort of changed the development process. So instead of focusing on one annual release, they would focus on the next couple releases, and they could give and take software features between the two. And I think that's what we're going to see a little bit more this year uh, is new features, but with a big performance push. So I want to talk about some of the, the new things that they're going to be pushing uh, on, on one hand, the Apple Watch is going to be getting more independence. So they're going to be adding, for the first time, the App Store to the Apple Watch. Is that something that you think developers have been uh, asking for, anticipating? What would the benefit be there? How would it even look on such a small screen? Yeah, it's, it, that's a great question. It's, uh, it's something we always expected. When we released the watch, the expectation in the very first was that we were going to have a watch store right on the watch. Uh, but it became embarrassing the number of apps that you would um, that were submitted specifically for the watch. I mean, as you know, right now, what it's twenty thousand watch only apps. Which, if you think about in the in in uh, or, or apps that support the watch, I won't say watch only apps. Right, apps that support the watch, only about twenty thousand versus two point two million. So it's always been kind of a, a embarrassment for Apple. They're, they didn't get enough people uh, understanding the design how to design for a watch, but also uh, uh, people just didn't gravitate towards it as much as they did the iPad, and the iPhone, and, and Apple TV. And the apps were super, super buggy. Like you would launch apps, it would take a very long time to load. It was like the very, it was, remember when the iPhone 3G came out with the App Store? Okay, so the phone came right. out in July. Then Steve Jobs unveils this big software update in September. But within that three-month period, that thing was really buggy. Yeah, really buggy. But that's what the Apple Watch was yeah. like for like the first year or two. That's right. And so, and so, so yeah, Apple was always kind of embarrassed by, by the watch submission numbers. I tracked them every week. And I remember doing that for about six months. Finally, the executive said, you know, we don't need that data anymore because it's just kind of a letdown when you see it. I mean, I always tracked it. For me, transparency is important, right? You want to be as open as you can with the executives when my team would make a mistake, et cetera. But we always included this data. We always wanted to see how it was trending up or down and, and submissions because I could allocate team resources differently, take people off the watch team because I had different teams for everything. I had a Chinese language team, I had a watch team, and, and the idea was to be able to, to uh, use, allocate your resources appropriately. So I'm excited that the watch is finally uh, getting its own store. It's going to be difficult to navigate, and we know all of the, the issues that are in a constrained UI, but, uh, but I'm excited that the, finally the push is there because the idea 
is that now you have a place to look, watch only. Uh, you'll be able to sit there, and while you're sitting on the bus, you'll just be able to swipe through your watch and see what apps you want to download. I think it might have a little more engagement. I think it'll be good for them. And they're also doing a few new applications for the Apple Watch. There's going to be a voice memos app for the first time. Uh, there's going to be a woman's health app called Cycles, a pill reminder, reminders app called Dose. What, what do you think of them adding? Oh, and there's this Apple Books app for listening to audiobooks that they're adding. Do you think that's going to you know push developers to build their own competitive apps for the watch as well? Or, or does it scare them away? That's right? the question. I, what do you think? I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. To me, Apple hasn't been getting the uptake on on watch submissions that they want. People love the watch. Don't get me wrong. People love the watch for its built-in functionality for the most part. These apps are, are, are tertiary or secondary or tertiary. So I think it will probably drive more development. If if they start getting more engagement, especially with these apps that, that are needed, I mean, why haven't we had a voice memos app on the on the watch would have been helpful for this would have been very (laughs) helpful and and so for a long time you're wondering why they aren't doing that i'm glad apple's finally doing a push to do more native apps because yeah i think absolutely it'll drive more engagement a few other things here on this is on the ios 13 side so the iphone and ipad update obviously the ipad's going to get big updates for multitasking as they try to push away from the mac in some respects bring developers more towards the iPad. We'll get into that in a second. But also some more functionality taking over some third-party apps, like a way to create a second display by connecting your iPad to a Mac, a new reminders application that is pretty nifty, new stuff in messages, updated maps, a new Find My Friends and Find My iPhone combined app. Do you think this is going to present issues for developers, whereas Apple is coming out with better versions in some respects of what app developers are doing? Or do you think this is just going to make both sides better? It's it's a very valid point. A question. It, it's it's tough. It's tough to know the answer here, right? App, Apple and App Review have been uh, putting companies out of business since 2009, right? That, that's what I always like to say because you know how many companies. I, I had to call and destroy and say, look, your business model doesn't work anymore. We can't allow that type of app in the store. I've done that to many companies. Now, some of those people are still friends of mine, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, or they became friends in this process because they like the transparency and the openness of me saying, look, I'm sorry, we're, we're entering into this business. And so that's happened that to a lot of difficult for you? I mean, I'm sure it was. Uh, but what's the personal? Broke my story? heart. Broke my heart every time. Because I would say to the reviewers almost every day, it's like, because remember, it's 2009. Uh, uh, a lot of developers were submitting apps, and we weren't in. There were, I wouldn't say it was a recession, but the economy wasn't super strong. A lot of developers were out of jobs, and I would remind the review team every day that you are what's stopping an app from getting on the store and potentially making money for this developer to put food on the table and send their kids to school. But look, this is one of those cases where um, uh, a developer can can take Scott Forstall's advice and say. Look, I can do something better. Let me outthink Apple here. Uh, not easy to do always. Apple's got a lot of money and of they've got a lot of big brains. But at the same time, I think we can always come and find a, a, another uh, avenue at this same um, same type of technology. Now, what about the forgotten app store, the TVOS <laughs> app store? What is going on there? Or- are, are they getting a lot of submissions? It doesn't seem like new apps are getting added to that regularly or people are really taking advantage of the platform. It's it's sad. To me, past the iOS app store, uh, the, Mac, the uh, TV app store to me was going to be 
was was my favorite because I loved having the big screen. I loved just being able to sit there and, and do that. But there's, you know, it's not easy to enter your credentials. You then have to get your app out and and right. uh, on, on your iPhone. And and so for me, it just it's not still not a great user experience. And and how many people enter the password by speaking it into the thing when you're surrounded by folks? You know, you Never. don't do that. So it's it's difficult to get into the the TV app store um, I, for a user to get in there and find interesting things. But I think there's still so much promise. We just need better ways of interacting with it. And uh, I still have yet to see that. Right. And what about the HomePod? There's no official app store, but there is a way to tap iPhone apps into it. I think it's a huge, huge missed opportunity. I agree. I don't anticipate that being fixed this year. But do you, would, do you think they would go up against the, the Alexa app? I, I think they should, absolutely should. It's just they, they need more, right? For right now, Alexa's got pretty, you know, I, I go into Alexa. If, if, if I want to get something new on that, I go to my phone, I find something interesting, and I install it. And pretty much anything I want is there for the most part. And, and I enjoy that. When you can get to that point with the HomePod, when there's enough submissions, I just don't know how much there is there right now. Yeah, it seems like one of the, the weaker products in, sure does. in their lineup. But uh, just one other thing here that I just wanted to you know to touch upon, going back to WWDC, what was it like for you personally, like that week, that time, that lead up to it? What was the drop off after those the June introductions? And does the process really ramp up for you in those three months between the new iPhone release and WWDC finishing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, WDC was was difficult for my team. Uh, the, the first year I was there, we had no presence at, at uh, WWDC as far as my team was concerned. My team was back in Cupertino just trying to prove apps, right? trying to review apps. Uh, and I would walk the halls and I would talk to developers. Uh, and I realized that was a big missed opportunity for us, for, for the app review organization, to actually sit down and meet with developers. So it was at that next one in 2010 that I said, we need a room. I need, I need to be part of a, a marketing event or something so we can start talking to developers. And that became a big room full of, of my most senior app reviewers. These were typically the ones that would call developers. I, you got calls from these people. <laughs> All of us got calls from these guys. They, uh, they were the ones that would be able to represent the, the team well and be able to answer questions. Right, because developers love to record app review and try to put them on. Uh, I remember on the there hook were some blog things. posts, people oh, yeah. posting the recordings. Hi, this is whoever from Apple. That's right. Yeah. And and you know what I would do? I would download all those. I would listen to them, and then I'd bring them to the person that was was talking and the rest of the team. And I'd say, okay, here's how we should handle these calls. Now, it was embarrassing, but it was also a teaching moment. I wasn't doing that to out anyone and say, you did a bad job. It's like, hey, let's learn from this. Let's figure out how to make this better in the future. So I, it was great to have all these reviewers there in the room. And then I started getting iTunes Connect folks in there, started getting App Store marketing folks into this room. And so we basically had this big room full of, if you were a developer and you want to come into our lab, you get answers to all your questions. How do I get featured? You know, why are you rejecting my app for 16.1 or whatever the guideline was? And, and we'd get everyone together to be able to help out developers. And so after that point, 2010 on, uh, WWDC was hard. <laughs> I, was, right. I was in the lab every day. Uh, but I'd get pulled into other meetings with bigger developers. But mostly I would spend all my time in the labs trying to solve people's problems. And we had laptops there. We could look up exactly what your problem was and be able to 
diagnose it and tell you specifically what you needed to change. This screen right here, right? Stuff that's difficult to do over email or even over a phone call. We could sit down with the developer and, and let them know what the problems were. This is where I, it was in these meetings that some of these developers whose businesses I, 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 I took down would come to me and talk to me and we became friends over time. It's an amazing turn. Um, well, thank you so much. This was incredibly fascinating and eye-opening. I feel like we have a real inside peek into you know, the App Store. Well, thank you. Uh, I but, yeah, appreciate this that. This is great. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. I want to know what you thought about this show. Write to us at decrypted at Bloomberg.net or I'm on Twitter at, at Mark Gurman. And I'm at Brad Stone. And please help us spread the word about our show by leaving us a rating or review wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Pia Gadkari and Lindsay Cradowell. Our story editor was Aki Ito. Thank you also to Anne Vandermeer and Emily Buso. Francesca Levy is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.